we're going to talk about this month is this model of Jesus as being the perfect personification of love. And it's really, truly, hopefully, going to be able to define our approach and to define how we seek to impact the world around us or the world at large. Because the story of love is not one that just encounters us personally and transforms us, but it's also one that while it does encounter and transform us, it also extends through us to others in our life. And that's the beautiful story of love that has been set in place by this beautiful act of God in our life to send Jesus to the earth. And it was because of love. And so we're going to talk about this and we're going to establish this narrative, the storyline, which very clearly sets in place this beautiful focus of love, this beautiful and it actually looks like something standard of love. And we're going to start in 1 John 4, 14 through 20. So stick with me on it. It's a few verses, but I feel like it really sets a tone here. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. We know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And then if you skip down to verse 19, it says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Okay, so this scripture sets in place this narrative in this storyline, which is that first and foremost, what we must have embedded in our hearts is that God first loved us. This is important because the first act is significant. When God first loved us, we have to understand and start from this place because it allows us to experience the love of God in an accurate way, which is this, that it was undeserving, that it was not something we earned, it is not something we got because of our merit, but it's something that God gave us because he loves perfectly. And the reason that's important is because if we start from this place, none of us can take credit for the outcome of love because it's not something we earned. It's not the spectacle of our talents or gifts, but the love of God was given to us as a first act. That's profound. That's even challenging because it doesn't allow us to take any credit. It doesn't allow us to take uh, any amount of building up of the self or pride based on the outcome of love. So when God loved us and it does incredible things in our life, how many of you experienced the love of God in your life before? Did you like it? <laughs> Was it awesome? I agree. But the reality is, is that when we experience his love, because we didn't earn it, it's not a credit to us. It's a glory to God. And since it's not a credit to us, it really does hopefully provoke, if we're truly encountering it, it provokes humility and gratitude. 
And see, humility and gratitude, if you're truly experiencing the love of God, are available to you because it's something that you didn't do. So if it's something you didn't do, then you can't take credit for it. And if you can't take credit for it, it's impossible for you to have pride on it. It's impossible for you to have arrogance on it because it's not something you did. Have you ever experienced a gift or given somebody giving you a gift that you didn't really earn and it was just too, too lavish and too generous? It makes you super uncomfortable, right? I know it makes me uncomfortable, like really uncomfortable. Have you ever seen the Office episode where Andy and Dwight, they won't let each other have the last generous act towards one another and they just keep on trying to top one another? Have you ever seen this episode? All right, who cares? <laughs> I usually bring up Seinfeld and then no one knows what I'm talking about except like one or two other people I've talked to. So I'm trying the office that also didn't work. So we're going to try a different one next time. But there's this, there's this reality that when we experience something that we, it's, it's not, it's not one for one of what we've earned. It can be really uncomfortable. It can be even challenging because, well, I didn't earn that. You know, I, I didn't. I didn't, I didn't do something to get that. It's wages that we didn't earn. It's a job that we didn't earn. It's a reward that we got, not because of what we did, but because God loves us. And that's dynamically different than how we've been trained most of the time. Which most of the time we're trained to, to understand the correlation between our hard work and the outcome of our hard work. Put in a day's hard work. Come on, make it happen. You know, I've been climbing with my buddy Jason, and, and he's always encouraging me not to go uh, grade chasing, but to put in the work, you know, and to incrementally go up and up and up, and I hate his advice, you know? <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> I want to climb all of the hard stuff immediately. <laughs> and when he warms up on the things that I can't do, it's like, what's happening? <laughs> but you, you realize that most of our lives are built around this premise, which is effort and then it determines outcome. And so you, you learn to bolster the self, to improve the self, to refine the self, to get a greater outcome. And we create methodologies that will allow us to improve the self. But meanwhile, we're introduced to a gospel that basically says you, the self of you, is irrelevant to what God is giving you. His love is unconditional. And at first that sounds like really good news, but it's kind of humbling because you didn't earn it. So you can't wave the flag of credit and say, God loves me and he doesn't love, wait a second. He also loves the guy I hate. He also loves that person across the room, you know. He also loves that person that I don't want to talk to anymore. And all of a sudden, you realize he loves all of us with this same beautiful, unconditional, perfect love standard. And why does this matter as our starting point? Well, it matters as our starting point because if we can start together collectively in a place of humility, grateful that we receive the love of God, it allows us to have the grace in our life because humility yields grace and grace allows us to be transformed and to walk in power in God. It allows us the ability to be like God in character. See, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
So if you can experience the lavish love of God, it sets the tone for you and I to be able to approach people different. Because when God gave to us, when we didn't deserve it, he calls us to do the same things to others when they don't deserve it. So this beautiful story of love which encounters us, and we love singing about it, you know? We love singing about the, the famous song, you know? It's, when heaven meets earth. How he loves. Thank you, Johnny. <laughs> I'm about to be a worship leader, come on. We, we love... <laughs> So good at it. I've noticed no one sits in the front row, and I think it's because I get really close to the front row. <laughs> but I, we we start to we love to sing about this side of the love story. God loves me. His love is amazing. Oh, how he loves. But what's really hard to understand, but it is biblical, is that. God, the way he loves you should change, alter, and author the way you love others. Because love actually looks like something. So the Bible says in John 13, 34, it says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Which means if you've experienced the love of Jesus, however you've experienced that he loves you, what is absolutely trying to take place in your life is that it transforms the way you love others to match the way you've experienced his love. See, that's why there's a problem if you haven't truly experienced the love of God. Because it gives you no sample size, no model for how your love should change. It gives you no grid of experience or relational experience for you to know that's what it ought to look like. See, when I was dating Jess, uh, and this was really even before I started dating Jess, um, and of course, if you're new, it's Jess is my wife, 11 years, four kids, so we love each other. She's amazing. When I first started talking to her, though, I loved her first, for sure. She'll tell you the same thing you can ask her. I loved her first for sure. She had all these bad ideas of being friends. You know what I mean? It was just, what a horrible idea. And she did her best to friend zone me, but I absolutely broke through, praise God. But I, I, I did, I loved her first. I, I knew it, I for sure knew it. I didn't tell her, cause you know, whatever, poker game or whatever. No, I did actually tell her, and then I don't remember exactly what she said, but she didn't say I love you back, like, for a second. <laughs> That's jacked up, right? <laughs> that was persecution. But I loved her first for sure, and so I would pursue her. Hey, babe, what's up? Uh, I would pursue her. I thought you were upstairs. <laughs> now I have to tell the truth. No, uh, but <laughs> I would pursue her and flowers and all these things, right, and and I would pursue her, and then, you know, at some point I could tell that she was, you know, kind of lying to herself about, you know, she also loved me. I can kind of see it in her eyes, you know. And uh, we didn't kiss for a while, guys. Like, and I was Jessica's first kiss. She was a beacon of amazing purity and awesomeness. You got to hear her story sometime. It's amazing. I got to probably have her preach at some point, too. So, um, but she was incredible, and she used to not, she would hug me, 
you know, at the end of our night, I'd walk into her car and I'd hug her, but she wouldn't want to look up into my eyes as we were like going, because then she was like, I'm sure I'm going to kiss him, you know? And we hadn't kissed up until that point, so I always wanted her to look me in the eyes. I was like, come on, come on, come on. And she was disciplined. She never looked me in the eyes. I'm saying all that to say I loved her first. <laughs> and, uh, but I pursued her, and I actively, I actively gave, and I actively did things to, I thought, I went after her, and I think it's important that we understand and have this frame of God, that he first loved us, which means our perspective of God should absolutely be that he is pursuing us. In an unrelenting way, God is pursuing us. And if you and I don't have that frame of God and that scope of God, we don't see God accurately. Like sometimes we imagine that God isn't pursuing us because he's mad at us because we've been blowing it for four years. Or we blew it last night. And so we kind of put the dunce cap spiritually on us and put ourselves in a corner and we're like, well, God's probably like, you know, disappointed in me. So he's not like, you know, and he's not, I don't feel close to him. No, God even then is radically in love with you and pursuing you. He is going after you. In the Bible, it says he's knocking on the door of your life. He doesn't just do that so you're like, yeah, say the Lord's prayer, and then he stops pursuing you. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a Bible verse that was just meant, you know the Bible, he stands at the door of your life knocking, waiting for somebody to open the door. He's not just talking about, hey, I'm doing this until you say the Lord's prayer, and then once you say the Lord's prayer, we're good. No, this is his posture is he's radically in love with us way more than we are with ourselves or with him. And that is his nature. And the reason why we should see that and know that is because his radical love should be encountered in a humbling way that makes us go, whoa, that's way beyond my love. That's way beyond my love for you and that's definitely way beyond my love for others. Because it's a radical notion to think that we can love like God, but it's a biblical one. Love just as I have loved you. It doesn't say love to the best of your ability, but you'll definitely not do it the way I did it because I'm way better than you. <laughs> Which honestly, like I'd, I'd, be, I'd accept those terms, you know, Jesus, you are. But he says, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. This is one thing I, I, I believe about Jesus, is he wouldn't call you to something if it wasn't possible to accomplish in his power and grace. Otherwise, what is that? That's just a tease and a deceiving lie of a calling. Hey, come on over, but ha, 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 you can't get here. Who calls like that? It's jacked up. Hey, let's hang out. Just kidding. No. <laughs> You can't do it. You have no car. You have no ability. <laughs> Which is youth ministry. So, <laughs> so you go to them. <laughs> That's how you learn to love. Is you get into youth ministry and you're like, yeah, baby. Come on, love. It's the standard that he created that the story of love is not just here. But it breaks through this body and form and extends to others. Because it actually looks like something. It's not subjective. It's not like, hey, that's love to you, brother, but I got a different version of love. 
1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 10, let's find out what love is objectively. Love is patient. Love is kind. This is a famous verse. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Here's the beautiful reality of it is that love and the love of God should define our approach. But too often, we allow our gifts to define our approach rather than the love of God. I'll describe it like this. You've heard of the fivefold ministry, right? Pastors, teachers, evangelists, apostles. Um, what did I not say? Pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets, and apostles. You've heard of the fivefold ministry. These are gifts. These are abilities people have given by God. They get to keep them without repentance. You have gifts. I have gifts. We all have gifts. A lot of times we define our approach with people, lost, saved, Christian, or otherwise, based on our gifts and the frame that our gift gives us of this world. For example, real simple one, if you looked at the pastor's basic frame of approach, it'd be, we gotta care for people. We gotta shepherd them. We gotta care for their heart. Come on, guys, it's about the heart, right? And I got a pastoral gift, so trust me, I know what I'm saying. And then the teacher would be like, we got to instruct people, guys. We got to make sure they know their scripture and their word, right? The prophet's like, man, we got to see, you know? We got to see the unseen. We got to know what's going on, man. Our battle's not against flesh and blood, but it's principalities and powers in high places. If you're not seeing the unseen, then you're not seeing, right? The evangelist is like, hey, what are we doing in these four walls? I don't know if you guys know this, but while we're having church, people are going to hell. Right? Like, these are the approaches. If we allow our gifts to define our approach exclusively, we're in trouble. We're in trouble because if our gifts define our approach, there is a problem because at some point, the outcomes of gifts will fail and or will not be never failing like love is. The challenge is, is that if our gifts create and define our approach, then inherently we will be divided. The pastor will have tension and conflict with the evangelist because the pastor sees value on gathering to care, nurture, heal. The evangelist thinks it's a waste of time because people are dying. People are hurting. They're like, are we all saved? We're all saved? Cool, now let's go witness. The objective mind would say, well, neither are wrong. It's just imbalance, right? We'd say something like that. But the reality is, is if we allow our gifts to define our approach exclusively, we're in trouble. We are in trouble because it was never meant to be the Christian walk that our gifts defined what we do and who we are, but it was meant to be the narrative of love. Yeah. Jesus didn't come with great gifts and did all of the amazing things with gifts. It was a story of love. He had incredible power that he did incredible things, but it was out of obedience because he loved his father and he did what he saw his father doing. It was a story of love, not a story of gifting and popularity and charisma and power. 
But oftentimes we seek to impact and influence based on whatever our gifts, styles say it should be. Look no further than our, our, look no further than our denominations and our different church streams. They're all based on just basically corners of the gift pie. What slice is your slice? Which one do you like? It's probably based on the frame and the scope that you or I have developed based on what we feel is our gifting or our strength. You know, you go to a word church that teaches the word, you're probably a gifting teacher. Or you have a, teach, a gift as a teacher, you probably have a value over those things. The reality is, is that it wasn't intended to be the thing that created our unity. Our gifts will not unite us. Our love for Jesus and his love for us will be the uniting ingredients. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people go, hey, if we were to just do this as a church and as church is, ever, could you imagine the impact? And it's always some idea that is some slice of the five-fold pie, you know? Imagine if we all just loved and cared for people, or excuse me, if we all just cared for people, how much different our churches would be. That's the pastoral slice of the pie thinking that's what approach should look like. Imagine if we just went out and evangelized and told everybody about Jesus. Everyone would be saved, right? Or everyone would get saved once, and then if we only evangelize, they would never go any further than the shallow waters of the first meeting with Jesus, and they wouldn't be discipled, they wouldn't be cared for, they wouldn't be nurtured. The reality is, is that you need all five, and the reason and the way you engage with all five is you don't allow any of them, any of them to monopolize your approach. And it's the hardest when it's your approach, right? Like it's the hardest. I have a pastoral thing and I've got some of the other things I think. I used to say I have all five, but that was just because I was competitive. <laughs> They're like, what gift are you? I'm like, how about all five? <laughs> and I didn't like the idea of being pigeonholed, but that's another story. The reality is though, is that whatever yours is, the thing you, you, you most naturally think like, your mind naturally goes to care, naturally goes to evangelize, naturally goes to, to organizing, to, to instruct. Whatever your natural instinct is, it's probably your gift, and it's probably a thing that's going to be hard for you to lay down that, that gift approach, lay it down, and choose a superior approach of love. Let's read the Bible on this. I think it's going to be important. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. When the Bible says love never fails, but it says that prophecies will cease and tongues will still and these giftings and things that you engage in, whether it be a gift of faith, a gift of the prophetic, these things are never meant to be our defining approach. Our defining approach was always meant to be the heartbeat of God in love. And it really actually even goes as far as saying without love, these things are nothing. These things are nothing. Because if I stand up here and I can read somebody's mail and tell them their whole history and their whole future, and I don't have love, all I did was bring credit to myself and my gift. 
That's all I did. See, if I stand up here and or I walk out there and I engage in my gifts and I don't have love, it's a credit to me because they're the things I possess, they're the things I have, and I can take credit for it. And all of a sudden, the self begins to get bolstered up and we get prideful, arrogant Christians because all we know how to do is engage in our gifts. And it's no wonder pride is a problem in church because when you can engage in your gifts alone and that's it, then you don't have to actually be fully mature. You only show the part that you're mature in or gifted in and you're good. It's the luxury of having selective exposure to people. And when you make it only once a week for about two hours, hour and a half, you can be really intentional about what you're showing. So all of a sudden the story of love becomes one that goes way beyond our ability and it shifts our approach that's not based on ideology, that's not based on some kind of gifting and it shifts our approach to one that Jesus has and the one that actually is never failing. You know, you ever been around a resounding gong? It's kind of annoying, right? It's just like somebody stop hitting that big metal thing. Like, it's just like, you know, it's just. Have you ever ever noticed that like at some point, like the new method, the new book that comes out, the new approach of some kind of gifting, whether it be this, that, or the other, or that, that, or the other, and one season and decade, the prophetic is like everything, and then, and then we're just killing them all in the next season. We're like, the prophetic is dangerous, get rid of them all. And then one season, we hate the apostolic because it's controlling, and the next season, we're like, we need apostles, we're disorganized. And then one season, we're like, teachers are boring, get rid of them. And the next season, we're like, we have no foundation, where are our teachers? You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's just like, we always have these ideas, and we gravitate like, Like it's a trend from one gift dynamic to another gift dynamic. And any single one of these ingredients done in too much, it's like an overexposure to an ingredient. You're not healthy. You're not balanced in your diet. The point is, is that love creates the appropriate role for all of the gifts and makes room for all of the gifts. And it actually gives great grace when the gifts blow it. Or when human beings, which are the carriers of gift, are just absolutely blowing it. Because guess what won't fail? Love. Guess what will fail? People and their gifts. They will fail. And oftentimes we make our entire doctrine and safety and community based on some kind of gift we or others have. And it's just a shortcoming of perspective for us to believe that a single approach or a single gift will be the answer or the key to revival. The reality is, is the only revival I'm actually interested in is a revival of love. Because when it says God is love, the desire for God's great love to be lavishly available encountering people is the purity of revival. The purity of revival is not a singular perspective of how the church should look, having a dominant expression. The power of revival is that it's more of God and less of us. This is why this dynamic, more of you and less of me, this is why this dynamic exists. Because if we grow in our relationship with God to affirm self more, 
This isn't the love journey that's supposed to humble us and have us prostrate before the Lord saying, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. Biblically, when we're in relationship with God, his love levels us and humbles us. And it also makes us feel like we belong. Not because of our works, but because of his great love. And if this ingredient exists, it makes it easier for us to be gracious towards one another. Because while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. So when that person blows it over there, I can love them fully the way Jesus loved me as I blow it. But when I'm hard on that person, I haven't truly been humbled by the love of God. And if, and if your love and my love doesn't look like love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, et cetera, et cetera, if it doesn't look like this, Contend for that. Contend for that expression of love. Because Jesus says, love just as I have loved you. Not love to the best of your abilities with your own ideology and preferences and instincts and your history that limits you and, and defines your ability or inability to love. No, it says love just as I have loved you. Yes. Because what's inherent with the countering the love of God is that you and I change. That's inherent in a true love for God. The Bible says it. If you love me, you'll do my commandments. This is how we can be righteous without striving, is that the kindness of God leads to repentance. It actually changes the way we act. It changes the way we are. It causes us to stop lying. It causes us to stop cheating, except in Uno, because that's the best way to win. I actually hate that game. <laughs> And it's the only game I really feel like I never win, ever. Like, ever. It's just so awful. I don't like that game. And Chad. Yeah, there's just, nobody knows that game, though, I don't think. It's the games of chance, you know. I just, God favors other people for sure in those things. The reality is, though, is that this story of love was never meant to just be a good feeling. It was always meant to define us and to define our approach. And if it's not defining us and defining our approach, then that means that bondage exists and that we need freedom. What's odd is that sometimes our bondage and our lack of freedom hides in our ideology of what we think Christianity should look like. It's really interesting. We begin to embed ourselves into these specialized forms of what's right or what's wrong. You see people that are like hyper teacher oriented or hyper prophetic oriented. And have you ever talked to somebody that just doesn't like a certain other gifting or a certain other stream? You ever talked to somebody like this? They just absolutely hate this group over there or think they're pretty much devils. I find it astonishing the way church streams or denominations take great opportunity to crucify one another. Have you ever stepped back and just noticed like there's a lot of opinions that people are tearing other church denominations down with? And like we all believe in Jesus, like and the version of Jesus that the Bible says you should believe, but then we begin to alienate ourselves from one another because they believe in the gifts or they don't believe in the gifts. Or they believe in prophecy and they don't believe in prophecy or like and think it's dangerous. And all of a sudden everyone's just like thinking everyone's demons. I'm like, well, they're definitely not demons. 
Are you guys tracking with me right now? I think it's a problem because I don't see the reason. I don't see the reason if we're actually driven by love and approach. I see the reason if we're driven by gift and ideology. Because then your ideas have to wage war when another idea appears to be in conflict with your idea of how things should go. Like if I believe the church in Las Vegas will only amazingly cause revival in Las Vegas if we all become pastors, then if somebody has an anti-pastor idea or maybe even an evangelist idea, I'll think they're my enemy. I think their ideology is evil, it's bad, it should be torn down, and I'll make my rhetoric an anti-evangelist rhetoric. Meanwhile, all the evangelists in my church would just be shriveling up and dying and frustrated. Like, why aren't we also cultivating this? We were never meant to be champions of the gifts that we possess alone. And it's a human instinct and default for us to just develop what we know but we were never meant to just develop what we know because knowledge is passing. Wisdom is not the key, love is the key. Love literally causes you to have the empathy and compassion to know what is not in inherently yours. So while I have certain tendencies of gifts, I can cultivate and have equal value for all of them because love moves me towards people. And love eliminates the superiority concept. And because I've been greatly loved, I feel like authentically that I am uh, humbled, grateful, and not at all superior to another. It's why Jesus, when he came, he set this model of loving, which was not governance and king rulership, but it was washing feet. I mean, just look at the model of Jesus as he expressed love. They wanted him to rule. Many times they tried to get him to overthrow the Romans and to rule. And Jesus declined, intentionally chose not to rule, but to serve. Sometimes we believe that our impact should look like us being in charge. This is, oftentimes this is a lack of faith to believe we need to be in charge in order for us to have an impact like Jesus. Jesus had no formal governance either in the religious structure or in the political structure of the time, but he forever changed the landscape of humanity. You don't need to be in charge formally of anything, of anything in order for you to carry out a loving Jesus impact in society, in business, in community, and family. It's a farce, it's not true. It's misleading. Oftentimes it'll stop us from truly engaging in a loving impact because we're waiting until we get charge. This is the misleading aspect sometimes for us when we think we need to get to the top of the mountain of influence of one of these seven kingdoms in order for us to create some kind of change or revival. So we're trying to climb the ladder of whatever, entertainment or church or education, because we're like, I gotta get to the top of this thing so I can control the thing. It was never meant to be about some kind of competitive climb at all, at all. Man, if you're at the bottom, be faithful to the love narrative God's doing in your life. Yes. 
If you're at the top, be faithful to the love narrative God's doing in your life. And if he calls you to the top, walk. And you know what it says about the top? It says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord with those with clean hands and a pure heart? So if you want to walk to the top of the hill, focus with God on the loving narrative of him keeping your hands clean and your heart pure. Not of some kind of power dynamic that gets you in charge. Because if it's lacking love and you have great power, it's for nothing. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, just spectacular stuff, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, you know how spectacular that is if we take it literally? Like it's saying that literally if I looked over at that mountain right there and was like, all right, uh, move. And it moved. It says if I don't have love, that's nothing. So if you climb to the top of the mountain of influence in anything and you lack love, it's for nothing. You're the same as any other person that doesn't have the love of Jesus narrative in their life. It's just white noise. Because influence, even in the category of Christianity, isn't always loving influence. The next book that comes out, the next methodology that sweeps over the church, isn't always love. It doesn't always cultivate love. And just because it sounds good and has a couple of scriptures tied to it, doesn't make it the narrative of Jesus in our lives. Because the reality is the narrative of Jesus in our life is the story of love. If we're not driven by the story of love in our life, if we're not starting from that place, transformed by that place, driven by that place, we're just the white noise of ambition. We're just the white noise of whatever. Just more noise, more static, more everyone saying, look at me, look at my way. Sometimes that's the tricky part of success is that we do something for a year or two we find some kind of good outcome of success and then we're like, wow, I really crushed it. Here's what's interesting is we start looking back and studying our ways. Like, what did I do? That was pretty good. Oh, look at that. That's what I did. That's what I did. All of a sudden we create a formula based on what we did. And then we try and reproduce the success in the future based on what we did in the past. Does that not sound like being the Lord of yourself? See, it's interesting because Moses was asked at one point to strike the rock for water to come out because Israel needed it. He did it. And in obedience, he did it. The next time Israel needed water, he said, speak to the rock. He struck the rock. He got in trouble with God. Why? Because it's not about what you've done and had success with. It's about the love that drives you to be perfectly obedient to what God is saying in your life. God wants water to come out of the rock. He wants water to come out of you, right? It's not about whether or not the end destination is water coming out of the rock. And you can't just get there. The, the, mean, the ends don't justify the means. When you're walking with God, it's lock step. It's foot and foot and foot. It's heartfelt. It's the heart posture. It's the mind posture. It's locked in with obedience with God, not out of obligation and fear, but out of great loving devotion. 
He first loved me. That's why I started following him. That's why I, I, I said, oh, you're great. Because I was so blown away when I encountered his love. I was like, yeah, I'm following, I'm following my God. That's my God. That's my God. I believe at the end of the day, it looks like this. The gospel of Jesus is a story of love meant to provoke us to walk with him in love and thus love others the same way, the same way he loved us. If you say things like, I love him, but I don't have to like him, you might want to take a look again at whether or not you love him like Jesus loves him. I don't know what it looks like for you, right? I don't know what your gifts tend to make you good at or not good at. I don't know what you lack necessarily or what you possess in great quantities and surplus. But I know for sure that the appropriate focus of our life is to pursue Jesus in love and for him to love us and it to change us and change our approach with others in a loving way that is exactly like his love. This is the life journey. This is our calling. This is the substance of our approach. This is the frame of our approach. And really, love will never fail. Sometimes people fail to love, but love will never fail. And it's important to understand that because when you've had experiences where relationships have been painful or loving people has been painful and it seems like it's a better idea to just shut the thing down, you've come to the conclusion the heart is a bad idea and just shutting that thing down is a better idea. It's the narrative and it's the invitation of Jesus not for you to shut your heart down in love, but for you to learn the way Jesus loves. Because that love will never fail. It'll never fail. And be really comfortable to be dependent on God's love striking and encountering you in order for you to be able to accomplish love with others. Sometimes I think we're, we're, we're so independent of God, it hurts us to be able to love like God. Make yourself so dependent on God because you are. We are dependent on God to be able to love like God. I require his influence, his spirit in my life to love like him. Be okay with that reality. I know it's humbling. I know it doesn't give you any permission to bolster up the pride and the arrogance and the ego. I know it doesn't drive the head of the self this big, but ultimately it'll have you behaving and loving the way God loves. 